So here's another one of those episodes that kind of falls in the not really good, not really noteworthy, clearly designed kind of based on the original series sort of episodes. Because uh, <clears throat> this episode comes out of nowhere, introduces some mega super amazing tech people who are part of some ancient legend from, from God knows when that we've never even heard of before, and will never hear of since, who... Follow the completely classic Star Trek trope, original series trope of we're beneficial, no, we're secretly evil, which is amusingly enough one of the two most popular popular Star Trek tropes. The other one being we're evil. No, I'm just kidding. We're actually good guys. They like to do that a lot. You ever notice that? Anyways, anyways, and um, it's not that good. Now, I can't call this actively bad. This is nowhere near as bad as the dreck we have had in some of the really early stuff, like Naked Now, and Justice, and Code of Honor. But this is the kind of episode that I would probably recommend people just go ahead and skip. It doesn't really add anything to anyone. It doesn't really do anything for anybody. Um, it was nice to see, I can't remember his name, um, the guy who plays uh, Radu. Radu? Radu? He's the guy, he's actually a character, an actor, excuse me, who shows up a couple more times in Star Trek. And of course he played Deep Throat over on X-Files, which is actually where I knew him. Uh, I, I shouldn't say know him most from, because obviously X-Files was after this, but when I went back to rewatch TNG when the, the VHS set first came out, I was like, oh my god, mom, it's the X-Files. Anyways. <clears throat> so, I don't have actually much to say about the behind-the-scenes side of things here. Despite presentation, this is actually a fairly low-tech episode. I mentioned the budget issues last episode with that damn chair. Well, this episode looks a lot better and a lot crisper on the Blu-ray because, of course, they touched up all those effects and basically replaced most of them. But there's a reason most of this episode is basically a bottle show. Instead of showing this massive city with all these people or any kind of backdrop, there's roughly three rooms that consist, excuse me, four total, although the fourth one is actually just one of the existing sets that they do different lighting with. So three different rooms, which is actually just one different set redressed a little bit for the, pla for all, for the places on Aldea, Aldea, excuse me, and the Enterprise sets, which they already have. And the only special effect they do of any significance other than the frequent transporting, which is, which actually, it's funny here, they do a transporting of basically just, you know, a quick sound and a visual fade, like a straight cross dissolve. I mention that because, you, obviously, the intention is, oh, look how advanced they are, They're, they don't have to do the, that other people do. But, again, the reality is that this is cheaper. It is much easier and cheaper to just do a straight cross-dissolve between cuts rather than having to do the full transportation effect that they normally have to do. So that's cheaper, too. And you notice they use that effect almost universally throughout this episode. I just wanted to point that out because, again, it, it speaks to the budget issues. The one and only time they use a real special effect is when they show the Enterprise getting knocked out. And what's funny is they reuse that effect in the future because of how expensive that one effect was to make. So here we are, Aldea. Uh, of course, I have a couple of things to talk about. Only a couple, really. Riker, what I find interesting is that Riker recognizes Harry, the boy, on sight. 
Picard does too, actually, but only after he's been briefed on the situation and the kids who have been stolen. So it makes kind of sense that he would be able to identify them on site. Riker, before anything bad happens at all, is like, oh, hey, Harry. And, of course, he recognizes his dad on site too. That's probably the only thing I really like about this entire episode, is that little interaction right at the beginning, because it speaks to Riker's mentality. He is the guy in charge of personnel, after all. This is this will be true, like, all the way up to, like, season seven, I think. Is, is This will still be a thing where Riker is the one in charge of knowing all the people on his ship and knowing how to interact with them and what to do with them. Uh, he doesn't always do a good job of this. Barkley, excuse me. But, you know, that's that's... It's cool. I like that. that. That's that's a good thing. That's what Riker should do. So they go there and are like, oh my god, it's all there. This would be great learning about all this wonderful Atlantean kind of stuff. And of course, they directly parallel this to Atlantis. I can't help but point out how literally paralleled the, at least the mythos is to Atlantis. Ancient civilization... Nobody ever found it. Super advanced, you know, mythical, oh, everyone wants to find it kind of a thing. Never could. And all because, you know, they had this planetary-level cloaking device. Now, space is big, and I understand that. So, you know, the odds of them being able to find a specific planet are actually kind of low unless they actually try to scan for specific gravitational waves. I mean, it's still generating a gravity well. It's still orbiting, right? It's still orbiting its star. It's still rotating, right? So, so basic gravitational effects are still happening on it. So you could still find it, but probably only if you're specifically scanning that system with a scientific bent, and since it's a system in the middle of nowhere that nobody cares about, yeah, I could see why most people wouldn't do that. Just a quick scan and move on kind of a situation. I bring that up, though, because I like the idea that they have the cloak up and someone, like, warps into the system. And, of course, the odds of this happening are non-existent. But I, I just like the idea of, Fong, okay, we've escaped our, our, our captors, but now we're in this this dead space in the system. Now we just have to re- Oh, God, we're being pulled into an atmosphere. No! Oh! <laughs> So, one of the things I find funny is that, you know, I mentioned, you know, they're good guys, but secretly they're evil. This, I, I wrote it down. This episode takes 8 minutes and 30 seconds to reveal the fact that they're the bad guys. And now is a good, oh, now is a good time to mention that the, the director who directed this episode has never directed a Star Trek episode before or since. I point that out because you can tell it was someone who was stretching when it comes to directing. Now, I don't really mean that in a bad thing. It's not actively bad directing. I've seen actively bad directing because I've seen Battlefield Earth. No, I mean, this is someone who clearly was, was an amateur. And, and again, I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean it as a statement of fact. Someone who doesn't know the craft, doesn't know what to do with camera angles or lenses or positioning or blocking or any of that stuff. But... I imagine you, even you, who probably is not used to analyzing the directing of a particular visual work, could probably notice how weird it was in this episode, because sh they just like to use the fish lens every now and again to emphasize the severity of the situation. And it's just kind of weird. Like, all of a sudden, things are serious. Blah! Oh, God, fish eyes! Fish eyes! Okay, things are okay. We're back to normal lens. Wait, something serious is happening in fish eyes! <laughs> I, I don't know why that specific decision was made, but it made it so I couldn't take any of those scenes seriously. I, I was seriously trying to stop laughing. So, 
We're told by Troy that she senses thousands of minds. Now, I already told you why we only interact with, what is it, like six? Hang on, one. I can probably count them. One, two, three, four, five. Oh, God, is it just five? No, six. It is six. I was right. There, we, we interact with six Aldeans, right? And... As I mentioned before, we never see the surface of the planet. They hint that they have oceans that used to have life until the radiation baked them to unholy death. But, you know, they, they never really show us much of that. But it, it's just weird to me. Okay? <laughs> I understand the budget issues. I understand they don't want us to show the massive planet or the city or the throngs of people. What I don't understand is why they kidnap, I don't, I, I don't know how to count, but, you know, like a small handful of children. You know, it's Wesley, and, like, the girl, and Harry, and the other girl, and the other boy, and I think it's actually it, maybe. I don't know. It's not that many kids. Now, I know that these people don't really understand uh, anything about anything, and this is a severe example of stagnant culture right here, but, I mean, they do know what a gene pool is, Right? They're all, you know, uh, uh, sterile. They're all sterile. So the future of Aldea rests on these kids, of which they've got, like, eight, maybe. And that's just, that's, that's probably highballing it. That's not a gene pool. <laughs> that's, that's, that's some problems right there. Now, of course, this also raises the question of why this specific setup? Remember, they lured the Enterprise-D here specifically for this purpose and then took their kids. They already had read their, their logs. They would already scanned their computer. That's how they knew about Riker, right? They even show off that little bit of information to show how superior they are. And isn't it always the way with stagnant civilizations being super self-superior? You ever notice that? Anyways, so, you know, they're also superior. And so, therefore, they bring them here and they take, like, eight children or whatever. Why not do this again or maybe with like a bigger ship like why not try to do something that actually has a, a, a hair's breadth of a chance of actually working outside of this they have knowledge and information of the outside galaxy it's not like they're going into this ignorant so why specifically go after one galaxy class cruiser and pull just a small handful of people I, I don't get that anyways anyways so then, you know, they offer the super tech, and Troy gives a line that makes me laugh every time I hear it. Humans are unusually attached to their children. Now, I mean no disrespect to Marina Sirtis, but the way she says that line, I, I was trying to replicate it as clearly as I could, are unusually attached to their children. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I mean, yes, that, that is true. I'm not sure about the unusual part, but it certainly does seem to be true that we do happen to give a crap about our children. It's even worth noting that we care about our children whether they are blood or chosen. Adoption, that's a real thing in real life and has been for many, many years. And I want to bring that up really quickly because it's probably the only thing as far as a concept of this episode that I like. The idea that the Aldeans understand, acknowledge, and are totally cool with, they never even bring this up. They're okay with their successors, the people who will carry on the Aldean legacy, being other people. Other species, actually. Unless we're trying to say the Aldeans are literally humans, but 
given that almost every alien race we meet in season one is a human, not even with makeup, just a human, you know, that might be part of that. But anyways, point being, they're okay with these kids clearly having no blood relation and possibly being an entirely another species. So that's kind of an interesting concept. It's It, it kind of showcases either a complete lack of understanding, which is probably what it was intended to be. Notice they don't even have a proper term for families. This will be your unit, right? Or it showcases that this is a group of people who have gotten to the point where they understand that well, you know, Aldea is a culture, not a bloodline. And they're okay with the species dying out, since there's nothing they can do about that anyways, as long as the people don't die out. It's just kind of an interesting concept. And again, they never really discuss that. In fact, they never even bring it up. Although, of course, if they had succeeded, thanks to the radiation problem, there's a pretty good chance that the kids would have been sterile as well. And there goes your people, too. It's also worth noting that one of the people they kidnapped was Wesley Crusher, who at this point in the show was the Ubermensch, who could probably figure out how to take over the entire planet. And, well, I mean, he is the one who organized the uh, rebellion here. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Anyways, so. Uh, this is, would you believe this is our first real Wesley episode? I mean, we've had episodes where Wesley has featured somewhat predominantly, including in the second episode of the entire show, uh, and the first episode of the entire show. But this is the first episode where Wesley kind of stops being a guest star and starts being one of the A-list characters, at least for the sake of this episode. I'm not sure what to make of that. Now, I actually do like... Uh... Oh my god, I can't think of the actor's name all of a sudden. I've met him in real life and I can't think of his name. <laughs> uh, Wheaton. I do like Will Wheaton. And I think he's a decent actor later on. So I don't... And, and I've actually seen him do decent, decent acting before he is on TNG. So I don't know if this is problems with the director, because, again, the director really is new at this. Um, but his performance in this episode is bad. Like, I don't know where to point at that. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't know if it's his fault. I don't know if it's the director's fault. I don't know if it's writer's fault. His, his acting is bad in this episode. He says a lot of lines where the emphasis is just wrong. Or he kind of doesn't really have a proper tone to his speech. You know, kind of as I was trying to do just now. You know, it, it just comes across as someone who is awkwardly bumbling through a line, basically. And... There are several scenes where you could tell he's trying to portray strong. I am a strong character. I want to be taken back to my family. You know, and that's that's no 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 no. Now, granted, I I'm flinging stones from my glass house. I've been a bad actor too. I spent literally years studying acting and and being an actor in plays and stuff and a little bit of television television work, local stuff, nothing big. Uh, so I, I get it. I get the the idea of being early. I, you know, I, I'm not trying to poke fun at that. But it does kind of actively detract from this episode when he's in the spotlight so much. I also want to point out something really quick. This is kind of an anecdote. Uh, towards, towards like, the middle point of the episode, there's this weird subplot, and I had to write her name down, Rashala. She's the main female uh, Aldean. And she shows up, and she's like, No! This one is mine! I will never let her go. And the music is like, da na na like it's some big plot twist plot point. It's never mentioned again, ever. It never comes up again, ever. It's just kind of there, and then the writer forgot it happened. 
So, <clears throat> Picard gives an analysis of the Aldeans in the episode, and I wish that analysis was not there. No, I really do. It is completely on the nose. It is very accurate. And props to, I can't remember his name, you know, Deep Throat, uh, who plays uh, Radu, because he does a perfect job. He, he actually nails the acting of this. In many ways, I'd say that actor, that guest star, helps salvage the episode from otherwise being much dreckier than it would be. Because we see in him someone who is the epitome of accustomed to control. Basically, imagine a character in Star Trek who walks onto a holodeck. That mentality right there. It's not even, and I want to stress that because it's so ground in that he is in control, that he has absolute domination over the situation, that it doesn't even occur to him to question it. You know? I mean, when you walk onto a holodeck, you don't, you don't hesitantly say, computer, could you please do this? Because you know the computer's going to respond to you. Because you are in control, and you know that. Right? That, that mentality right there, that absolute certainty beyond all possibility. He does a good job of that specific slice of arrogance. And it's a very unique slice of arrogance. And, and I've seen many actors uh, try and fail to pull across the same thing. Most of the time when an actor is told, play arrogant, well, they just kind of do this and look down their noses at people sometimes. Literally, I've seen that too. And you know, sometimes they do the voice thing that I do too. You know, it, I've, I've seen that before. But he has a nice subtlety to it. And I like how the way the negotiation is presented is pretty much spot on. You know, again, Picard says it flat out, which kind of robs it of its subtlety. But you'll notice Picard does actually manage to negotiate his way around Radu several times. And Radu's just, yep, I'm in charge. And Picard capitulates verbally, capitulates physically, even actually bows his head at him a couple of times and says, yep, yeah, you are absolutely right, and clearly this is an amicable situation, and blah, blah, blah. And that's when Radu is like, well, now that I feel more comfortable because I am being acknowledged as being in control, okay. And then he starts to allow some stipulations. This happens twice in the episode, but the best episode, or excuse me, the best moment where that occurs is when he allows Beverly to go interact with uh, Wesley. It's like, all right, go ahead. And then, of course, what he does afterwards is exactly what was expected. All right, I've given you your chance. Now, I could demand your answer now, but... I'm in control, so I'm not really in any rush here. Instead, I'm just going to demonstrate that I'm in control, because I want to make absolutely sure that you know the situation that I already know is true. I mean, I'm on the holodeck. I already have a computer. Yep, there we go. Yep, see? So I know this. I know what's going on. You need to be aware of this. So, bloop, and they're 12 days away. Now, I'm not going to get into the physics and the nitpicking of exactly how a repulsor beam that shoves a ship 12 days away in seconds and the fact that the inertial dampeners on the Enterprise D were somehow able to compensate for that sudden and unexpected acceleration and the fact that it was able to pro to provide that much energy without that much kinetic energy without literally shredding the ship let's, let's just let's just bypass all that and say that it's okay it's super magic science whatever at this point, this is another way in which it's kind of a TOS episode. A lot of the tech in the original series was kind of science! And it's part of the kitsch. It's part of why I like about it, I'll admit that. But uh, 
it doesn't seem to quite fit in the TNG era, but uh, I'll discuss that more when we get to more relevant episodes. Regardless, so they get knocked away 12 days, right? So, all right, go back. Maximum more at warp nine. Okay. Then we cut to commercial break, and we are 12 hours from being back. Nothing has happened in between in 11 and a half days. That's a long damn period of time. And yet, apparently, they have done no additional work on figuring out how to get through the shield, no additional work on figuring out how to understand the cloaking device, and it took Crusher 11 and a half days in order to figure out that these people had basic radiation poisoning. Like, really, really basic. The way they describe it, it's literally just solar radiation that is not being properly filtered. They have really basic radiation poisoning. Now, I get that, you know, it's the future, and the medical technology of the future is apparently incredibly incompetent, as it has been in almost every episode it comes up in Season 1, but it really took her that long to figure that out? And then, oh, I'm sorry, it's not even true. She doesn't even figure out, like, a cure or a possible way to deal with it. It's just like, oh, hang on, let me figure this out. It's not until later that she's like, yeah, okay, I could cure them. In fact, she could cure them easily. Um, what? That's... <laughs> Uh, okay, okay, whatever. I'm not I'm not going to keep nitpicking it. I just wanted to draw attention to it. So and then <sighs> while I'm on the 12 days point, I'm sorry, I got to point out one other thing. While I'm on the 12 days point, it took 12 days for the kids to start being upset at being kidnapped. I'm going to tell you something that's a true story. Someone tried to kidnap me once when I was very young. Uh, it was actually horrifying. I actually have very distinct memories of that day. So does my mom, as you might imagine. It was just some guy in a, a Macy's or something like that who was trying to kidnap me and pretending that he was my dad. Now, I knew he wasn't my dad, but I was freaked the hell out by the situation. And uh, when the police came by and actually interrogated me about this, I shouldn't say interrogate, when they, when they asked me what the hell was going on, I was like, well, that's my mom, and this is a stranger. And he didn't have a good day for the rest of his time there. I have no idea what happened to him. I was I was very young. But I mentioned that because that was my emotional reaction to someone attempting to kidnap me. This situation in this episode is the successful kidnap of multiple children, of multiple age groups, actually, plunged into a completely alien environment. Now, I know. They're a little bit more pleasant about it because, you know, oh, we're going to go teach you this stuff and this stuff. But all I'm trying to bring up is the point that this author who wrote this episode doesn't know how to write children. Now, there's no real shame in that. We all, as, we all as writers have our strengths and our weaknesses, right? You know, we all have things that we're better at than worse. I'm the same way, you're the same way, we all have things. It's not like there's one writer who's just universally good at every aspect of writing. So there's nothing wrong with not being able to properly write a specific type of demographic or group. But you need to kind of acknowledge that and either get help from someone to either shore up your writing or to literally fill in the gaps in your writing. Because I want you to do, a, do something for a moment here, okay? I want you to picture this episode as if the, pe the kids who were kidnapped are in their 20s or 30s. Just do that for me for a second. Close your eyes. Picture the episode. Picture how they react to things. Now, some of it obviously doesn't fit, 
but their tone, their word choice, the way they interact with the people around them, the passive resistance, the fact that in 12 days they're only kind of just still waiting for rescue rather than freaking the hell out like kids will do. You see what I mean by this? They were written as tiny adults. It's actually a very, very common problem amongst writers to write kids as tiny adults. It's one of the reasons I go out of my way to praise writers when they write a child as actually being, you know, how a child would act. Now, <laughs> that also brings me to another little point here. So, they start this passive resistance thing, and this is where the total stagnation, used to being in control thing, kind of comes to a bit of a head. You know, that's been the, the arc this whole time, right? And the kids are not talking and not eating. That's their passive resistance. Because a kid who is hungry and upset and is missing their parents for 12 days will just sit quietly. I've already made that point. Point being, I've taken care of more than one kid in my life, by the way. Three, actually, that I can name. Uh, it's not how kids work. Anyways, <clears throat> oh, but of course... I know the counter-argument. I should have brought it up. Forgive me. Of course, we have become evolved into a new form of humans. That is bullcrap, bullcrap, bullcrap. Okay, I just wanted to acknowledge the point that was probably being intended here. Moving on. So, they have this super amazing custodian. Okay? And it gives them a cure for lesions that they're having. They actually mention that flat out. Uh, because they have massive radiation poisoning. And he even mentions that they have scientists. Now... Radiation is a really basic fundamental concept, a little little lower tier than repulsor beams that push people 12 days away, or planetary cloaking devices, or energy-to-matter uh, replication technology, and God knows what else they've got going on here. So, um, why, <laughs> why exactly is it that none, no one involved ever even suspects this, that their medical technology and understanding is so limited that they're literally at the point of, of dealing with the symptoms and not even looking into the cause? Is, is, this, is this what they're going with? Is this the direction that they're trying to present here? Because I get the stagnation thing, but that's, that's starting to press my, my believability bubble. It's starting to break my suspension of disbelief a little bit. And it's also probably worth noting that after all of this, they, they keep talking about how we're talking about parts of the galaxy you've never even seen, and amazing tech pushing you centuries in advance. They still have all that tech, right? Uh, right? After they uncloak the shield and cure all of them from the primitives, they still have all that amazing technology and understanding. Why do we never hear from any of it again? Or is what happened, the Borg showed up and said, oh, hello, because that's all I got. <laughs> I have no idea what else could have happened to these people. But uh, I do have one last thing to mention. And that's that uh, three minutes, three minutes before the end of the episode. That's counting credits, by the way. That's the full length of the Blu-ray that I was watching. So three minutes before the Blu-ray episode ended, suddenly, out of nowhere, he's like, I understand now what we must do. And clearly this is a situation in which, you know, we will have to learn our technology and we will have to grow and adapt and blah, frickin' blah. This is a man 
who has been presented for the other, oh, I don't know, 45 or so minutes of the episode, excuse me, 44 minutes of the episode, as being a stuck-up prick who is so certain of himself and so in control that that's basically been the good part of his character. And then, literally at the finish line, he's like, oh, hang on, hang on, I'm redeemed, I'm redeemed, I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy now, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. Maybe he's a politician, I might explain that. But in the terms of the episode, I just find it incredibly unbelievable and just generally disinteresting. It's like, oh yeah, sure, now, now you're turned around. Uh-huh. Now that you're out of control, you decide to give up the thing that you your entire society relies on. Good one. And then, of course, they have to end the episode on a face-palmingly thing. I've been bringing this up throughout season one, where they have this little tidbit of having to end on, like, a little half-joke or whatever. And there's this little... In the music, right? I've been pointing that out. This episode is probably the worst one for that in the entire series so far. And that would be the... So they talk about them, and Troy makes this line, which is so face-palmingly bad, I can't help but notice it. I don't even remember the other lines. It's just, and we know they'll make good parents. What? 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 I... uh, What kind of... I mean, okay, okay, okay. If I'm to be absolutely fair, I do have to acknowledge that Troy's parent you know, singular, is Loxana. And compared to Loxana, sure, maybe they're better than that. Because I have no other way to justify that incredibly stupid statement. And then they have to bring the kid on board, and all the people have to have a nice snicker at the stalwart Captain Picard. The end. Not a good episode. Hopefully the next one will be a bit better, which I hope I will be seeing you guys at next time.